2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is what will be the focus of our attention this evening. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We've just moved from a very significant passage of Scripture, the beginning of chapter 2, which talks about the day of the Lord and, and the fact that it has not come. We know that it hasn't come because Christ hasn't come in judgment, which comes after the Antichrist revealing Himself, and that comes after the Holy Spirit removing Himself from uh, a place of restraint over uh, the the Antichrist and the, the sin of this world. And so we know it hasn't come. And this passage here, chapter 2, verses 1-12, through 12, is a very significant passage in Paul's letter. And next week, we're going to look at chapter 3, which starts to move into this huge sin problem. It actually won't be till two weeks when we look at um, when we look at this unruly brother who is apparently not working. He thinks it's okay for him to just quit his job and and do nothing and live off of other people. And yet the scriptures will say, Paul will say to to him very uh, straightforwardly, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Now, between these two big passages, which are really two of the biggest themes that that are uh, in this little book, this little letter that Paul writes, is this small section at the end of chapter 2, which we might think to be unimportant. Maybe Paul's just filling some space. We tend to do that with vocalized pauses, um and uh, so maybe this is kind of Paul's um and uh in a letter. Right, that maybe he's just trying to transition from the more from the from the important things, doctrinal deviance that the day of the Lord has already come, and then there's going to be this moral deviance where people are starting to turn away from godly living, and so in between, Paul, Paul kind of says, um, uh, and he just fills it in with these five verses. But I would suggest to you that this section of Scripture, verses 13 to 17, is tied to the previous section as, and is vitally important for our understanding of, of church life. Notice the first word there in verse 13 is the word but. And that tells us that this section is tied to what Paul had just said in the previous 12 verses, the previous paragraph. So in other words, in light of the gruesome condemnation that will come on those who do not accept God's truth, that's what he was just talking about. We'll see that in just a second. Paul cries out in thanksgiving to God for God choosing them, God calling them to salvation, God sanctifying them. And that's what this section of Scripture is about. So let's read it. I'll read, you follow along, chapter 2, verse 13. This is the Word of God. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our Gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm, And hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who has loved us 
and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strength in your hearts in every good work and word. And this short section really makes up two paragraphs. Paul is showing us that because God has chosen and called us, we must stand firm in the faith. God has chosen and called us, and so we must stand firm in the faith. In this passage, Paul does three things. First, he gives thanks to God for their salvation. He gives thanks to God for their salvation. Second, he calls the believers to stand firm in their faith. And then third, he prays for them. Okay, so we're going to look at each of those as we come to them. First, Paul gives thanks to God for their salvation, verses 13 and 14. He gives thanks to God for their salvation. That God had chosen them. Remember the first word of verse 13 is the word but. It's in contrast to what Paul was just talking about. So let's look back at what he was just talking about. Let's start with verse 10 of chapter 2. It says, And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who do not believe, who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. And then he says in verse 13, But we should always give thanks for you, brethren beloved by the Lord. So in contrast to those, we don't give thanks to God for them. They, they are actually have, they will have turned away from the truth. These people at the end of the tribulation who will have sent to have a deluding influence sent upon them, they will perish because they did not believe. They did not accept the truth. And so as Paul's thinking about these things, he's reminded of the position that the Thessalonians have, that they're not like those people who will who will believe the deluding influence, who will believe the lie of Satan and follow him. Instead, they have a different outcome. Those people, verses 10-12, through 12, are destined for what? For God's wrath, right? They're going to be destroyed. God's judgment. But not the Thessalonians. Thessalonians are destined for glory. And if you're a Christian today, so are you. And so Paul says in verse... 13, we should always give thanks. Now the word should there actually could be better translated as ought. It's the same, it's the same word from which we get the word ought in verse 3 of chapter 1. So if you just flip back to chapter 1 real quick, I'll show you. We, we could say should. Should or ought. Ought always to give thanks to God for you. It's this almost a, a sense of obligation. Uh, I am so compelled because of what God has done to you, that I ought to give thanks. That's what he's saying in chapter 2, verse 13. The first thanksgiving in chapter 1 was because of their growing faith and love. Here, he, he gives praise to God for something else. Notice why Paul gives praise to God. Why he gives thanks to God in verse 13. Brethren, beloved by the Lord, second line, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. God has chosen you from the beginning. Now, there's some debate over this phrase, from the beginning. 
Look at the center margin of your Bible. Uh, there should be a note there like there is in mine. Instead of from the beginning, what is the other option? You see it there? You need your reading glasses there? What is it? First fruits, right? So in the earliest manuscripts, that the earliest known manuscripts that, that scholars have, the word actually should be translated as first fruits. But in later manuscripts, it was changed, likely, to in the beginning. Now, uh, in general, I, I tend to follow the earlier manuscripts, but I have to admit that this is a hard reading if you take first fruits here. So Paul would be saying something like this, because God has chosen you as the first fruits for salvation. And the reason that the ideas of God's election and us being first fruits are, are, are difficult to, to reconcile is because they're never mentioned together in scriptures. This would be the only place that they're ever mentioned. Whenever God's election is mentioned, that is God's choice of believers, it's always mentioned in the beginning. That is, before the beginning of time, before the foundations of the world, right? Ephesians 1.4 says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. And so we would expect that, like the New American Standard translates, that it should be from the beginning. So we have a dilemma. Do we follow the New American Standard and the King James Version, which follow the later manuscripts in this instance, or do we follow the New International Version, the English Standard Version, which follow the earlier manuscripts? And just to be honest, I, I don't really know. This is a really tough one to, to come down on the side. I, again, I lean toward the earlier manuscripts, and that would just simply be saying as the first fruits to be saved. But if that's the case, I don't fully know how to explain that. But what I do know is that God's election, God's choice, is always before the foundation of the world. It is before we had done anything. God did not look down the corridors of time and determine who should be saved based on what we would do. God didn't wait to choose us until after we chose Him. God chose us. He chose us before the foundation of the world. And it is solely by His free choice that we are recipients of His grace. But what I want you to notice, you'll have to come to a determination on your own with that that rendering there. But what I want you to notice here in this text is that while God chooses us, and that is true, His calling of us is not accomplished apart from us. So that was kind of a double negative. So, in other words, God's calling is, is, is done with us included. Notice the last part of the verse says, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Notice, through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Here we see both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. That God is the one who chooses, and yet He expects us to express what at the end of verse 13? Faith in the truth. Right? So, here we see how God's choice of us plays out. It is through sanctification and faith in the truth. Well, what is this sanctification? If you know a little bit about... Um, Theology, you know that the word sanctification is used throughout the New Testament, throughout the Bible, in three different ways. And there's 
basic, they're basically a past aspect of sanctification, a present aspect, and a future aspect. Past sanctification is also called initial sanctification. Remember, sanctif- sanctification simply means to be set apart for God's purposes. And so is, there is a sense in which God set us apart already, hasn't He? Simply, God set us apart for the purpose of holiness, and that happened when? Right? I was saved, we say. It's past, right? I was saved. But there's also a sense of a present sanctification, which theologians call progressive sanctification. It is a growing process, right? And, and that is this continual process where we're fighting off sin. We're shedding sin from us. We'll never get to the place of perfection in this lifetime, but it's a continual progressive process. Progression. And so we could say, yes, I was saved, and now what? I am being saved, right? I am being set apart for God's purposes. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. And then there's a future aspect where God will finally set us apart from sin, where He will completely remove sin from us, and we will finally be set apart for the purpose of His holiness. And that's when? Not in this lifetime. It's when? Right, heaven and glorification. And so we could say, I was saved, past sanctification, I am being saved throughout this lifetime from the time you're a Christian to the time you die. Progressive sanctification. I I will be saved. The Scriptures talk about it in all three of those terms. So which one are we talking about here? God chose us from the beginning for salvation through sanctification. Well, we can probably rule out the third one, right? If we couple this idea of sanctification with by the Spirit and faith in the truth, then I think we have to to um, take it as the initial sanctification, right? It is justification. It's the first time we came to Christ. That, that, the, that God did something in us to cause us to come to saving faith. He effected a work in us to believe. And then we expressed our faith. We, God planted the seed in us and we believed. So it seems to me that the sanctification that Paul is referring to here is this initial sanctification that God's choosing of us led to our initial salvation through His Spirit by faith in the truth. So in God's choosing... God is absolutely free in His choice, but at the same time, we have to respond in faith, in believing faith. Notice God's purpose in His choosing in verse 14. God's purpose. It was for this. That is, for this reason. For for the reason that God chose you, He called you through our Gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was for this. So God chose you for what purpose? He, called, he, he chose you so that you would be called in the Gospel. That you would be called. And this should not surprise us, right? Romans 8.30 says, Those whom He chose, or those whom He predestined, He also what? Called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Right? So there's this progression that when God chooses someone to salvation, it guarantees them a call. And what is this call? 
How is a person called to salvation? Well, there are two types of call calls in the Bible. There's a general call and a a um, efficacious call or an effective call. The general call is the kind that you read about in Psalm 19. Right? Listen to this. It says in verse 1, "...the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pour forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them He has placed a tent for the sun." In Psalm 19, we learn about the clarity of God's presence. Everyone knows that God exists because God has sent out a general call throughout all the earth. There's nowhere you can go to hide from God and not know that He exists because His creation loudly speaks of Him. And even our own consciences tell us that He exists. Romans 2.15 tells us. And so... We know that God is... That's what's known as the general call. Now, everyone who receives the general call, will everyone who receives the general call come to saving faith? No. Because I just said, everyone receives the general call, right? Everyone. Everyone knows that God exists. And that's why there's this other call, and I think that's the one that's talked about here in verse 14. It was for this that He called you. This is the effectual call, the, the effective call. It, has, it, it affects us. It changes us. It guarantees saving faith. It's the kind that's talked about in John 10. Remember where the Jews gather around Jesus and they ask Him, so tell us. They want to know, point blank. Are you the Messiah? Remember how Jesus responded? Just look at my works. Do not the blind see? Do not the lame walk? Am I not who the Old Testament prophesied would come? And Jesus continued on, But you, Jews, you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. Well, what does that have to do with anything? They were asking if you're the Messiah or not. Why are you saying they don't believe because they're not your sheep? Well, the next verse tells us there, it says, My sheep hear my voice, And I know them. And notice this next phrase. They follow Me. My sheep know Me. They know the voice of their Master. So when I send out the call, when I send out that effectual call, the one that actually affects change, they hear it and respond because they know Me. They are My sheep. You Jews, you don't understand because you are not of My sheep. You don't understand that I am the Messiah. But My sheep know. That is how the effectual call works. That we come to an understanding that Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. You want to know what sets apart those who are Christ and those who are not? Is that those who are Christ hear the Gospel and they respond by following their shepherd. While others may either never hear or never respond. And so the fact that God chose us and God affected a call in us that that we would respond to the call leaves no room for boasting for us, does it? Because it's God who chooses. 
It's God who calls. It's God who transforms us. We sing often, before I loved Him, what? He loved me. Before I found Him, He found me. Before I sought Him, He sought for me. First John 4.19, we loved Him because He first loved us. And that's why Paul's praise is not directed at the Thessalonians, is it? He doesn't say, thank you Thessalonians for coming to salvation in Jesus Christ. What does he say? He says, I thank God that He has chosen you for salvation has called you to have a relationship with Christ. So God's purpose in His choosing to affect a relationship between us and God so that God would be praised. And notice the outcome of this at the end of verse 14. That you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to our Lord belongs great glory. And we ought to ascribe to our Lord great glory. He deserves it, doesn't He? But Paul is saying, you Thessalonian believers will share in that glory. Meaning that in some way, God's creation is going to lift up praise, get this, to us. Even though we don't deserve it. Christian, Does it feel like you are destined for glory? Do you feel like the world is kind of just beating you down? Do you feel like you are destined for greatness in the next life? If you don't, if you don't feel like you're destined for greatness, then then I would suggest you don't follow your feelings. Follow the truth of God's Word. It tells you that while this persecution remains, while these trou- the troubles in this world remains, while things seem upside down right now, that's not the way it will finally be. You are destined for glory because you are a part of Christ. Turn to Luke 17 with me. The idea of receiving glory is receiving some kind of honor because of the suffering that we have experienced because of our attachment to Christ and to His work. And this is amazing to consider, especially since we had a part in putting Christ on the cross, right? It was my sin that caused Him to die. And we in no way deserve honor from God, and yet... I mean, look look at this passage in Luke 17. This kind of puts us in our place and we start to boast about our accomplishments and things. This really helps us to gain perspective. Luke 17, 7 says, Jesus says, Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down? Right? Who? What, what kind of owner of an indentured servant would have him come in and sit down for dinner. Come on, you know we we know you had a long day. Come in and sit down. The idea is no one would. Verse eight. But he will not say to him, "Prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink." He does not thank the slave or the indentured servant because he did the things which were commanded, does he? And that's just not the way it happens. And then he says in verse ten, "Here's the point." So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, 
We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. You know, sometimes we just really, um, we really complain and 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 kind of um, do the humble brag type of thing because of all the service that we're doing for Christ. And what Christ says here is, listen, you are my bond servant, and and the very least you can do is to give your whole life to me. It's not time for you to rest. And you ought to say, when you're, you've done all that you've commanded, been commanded by Christ, is, I'm just an unworthy slave. God, I'm just your unworthy bondservant. I don't even deserve to be in this position. I deserve to be cast off and not cared for at all. That's where we ought to be. And yet, notice, turn back to Second Thessalonians 3, that you, verse 14, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, this is remarkable. In Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 48, God says, I will not share my glory with another. I will not share my glory with another. But for us, who have been united in Christ in some sense, we will share in Christ's glory. We will sit on thrones with Him in the Millennial Kingdom. We will reign with Him. And so in some way, we share in the glory that belongs only to Christ. His robes for mine. He as though I, accursed and left alone. I as though He, embraced and welcomed home. Right? We get what we don't deserve because Christ took upon Himself what He didn't deserve. I hope you appreciate the great theology here in Paul's thanksgiving for the Thessalonians. But like all theology, it's not just for our knowledge. It is for our purpose. Notice verse 15. So then, brethren. So, Paul begins with a thanksgiving for the believers. Verse 15, he turns to an exhortation for the believers. Here's how you ought to respond because of what God has done in you, what God has affected in you. Remember, this passage stands in contrast to the last one. Satan and Antichrist will lead many astray and they will be judged for it. But you can't be overthrown by Satan and the Antichrist because God has included you in His grand purpose. Therefore, notice what the text tells us to do. We must do two things. Verse 15. Number one, Stand firm. Number two, hold to the traditions which you were taught. So first, stand firm. The idea of standing firm is to hold on with vigorous strength. Like a mountain climber would hold on to a ledge. Keep your grip firmly grasped on that little edge of the mountain because if you let go, there's nothing left. Keep your grip firmly planted into what is solid. Why would this be important for the Thessalonians to hear? What was going on in their church that would require such a command? Remember, there is both doctrinal deviance, chapter 2. People were saying that the day of the Lord had already come. And there was moral deviance, we're going to get to that, where people are becoming morally lax, just stopped working. Notice how troubled they are in verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. No, verse 15, hold firm, stand firm, keep your grip on. 
Keep your grip holding on strongly. Their responsibility was to stand up in the middle of persecution, temptation to turn away from the righteousness which they had learned. Don't be fearful about the severity of the persecution or about Christ's failure to follow through on a promise that He's made to come in judgment. He will come in judgment. He hasn't given up on that promise. And so because of that, we ought to stand firm. In addition to that, we also need to, number two, maintain sound doctrine. That's what he says there in verse 15. Hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. These traditions are not referring to, as one commentator says, stories passed down from generation to generation. This is our family tradition. Not, Not that sort of thing. Instead, it is this verbal or written authority that comes across as the very Word of God, the Old and New Testament for us. For them, it was the apostolic teaching and the Old Testament for us. It is the entire Word of God which we now have preserved for us and translated for us in our language. And just like we saw this morning, there is no such thing as worship by proxy. There is also no such thing as belief by proxy. No one is going to believe sound doctrine for you in your place, in your stead. No one is going to trust God for you. No one's going to answer to God for you. Each of us has a responsibility to maintain sound doctrine. So Paul says, stand firm, keep standing up in the middle of trials, and maintain sound doctrine. Hold to the traditions which you have been taught, either by letter or by word from us. The third thing that being a part of God's plan ought to do for us. One, it ought to cause us to give thanksgiving. Two, it ought to cause us to be exhorted or to be challenged to stand up and to maintain sound doctrine. And three, it ought to cause us to pray for the empowerment of our faith. Verses 16 and 17. Paul prays for the empowerment of their faith. He says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Paul just thanked God for their salvation. Paul just commanded them to stand firm and remain in the truth, but Paul knew they could not do it on their own power. So he prays for them. Friends, all is in vain without the powerful and gracious work of the triune God that comes through our prayers. All is in vain. Notice what Paul does not do. He does not say, I'll be praying for you. He prays for them as he writes to them. I mentioned this in passing before, but if you read through Paul's letters, you're not going to see Paul promise to pray for people and he doesn't usually say, I prayed for you. Instead, he he prays for them while he's writing to them. He doesn't give thanksgiving directly to the people. He thanks God for them. Notice how he describes our Lord, the one who loved us and the one who has given us eternal comfort. That is a comfort that goes beyond our current struggles and gives us a sense of God's love and God's sustaining grace for us. And then he describes Him as the one who has given us good hope by grace the hope of the certainty of God's promises. This is a strong confidence in what God will do. Notice what he specifically prays for in verse 17. That He would comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work 
and word. Paul's prayer is that in all things and every good work and word, God would strengthen the believers for the task. Isn't this what we need people to pray for us about? That in all things, no matter where we are in life, in every good work and word that we're participating in, that God would strengthen us and comfort us. Because we are prone to become distressed and to become weak. That's why Paul says in, in another place, do not grow weary of doing good. Don't give up in the fight. And so when he prays for people, he says, I pray that God will comfort you and give you the strength to continue on. Again, a good model for us to pray for one another. The appropriate response we should have toward our salvation and the salvation of others is verses 13 and 14, praise, and then verse 15, service, and then verses 16 and 17, prayer. We ought to pray for more grace. So in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul has taught us that we should not be disturbed as if the day of the Lord has come because it has not come. When the day of the Lord comes, it will be a terrible time where we see Satan's power at its greatest. The Antichrist will be at the center of what Satan is doing, but doing, but we believers will not experience these awful things. You will not experience these awful things because your destiny is not wrath. Your destiny is greatness. Your destiny is glory. But in the meantime, we have a responsibility. Until Christ makes all things new, until He makes all things right, until He destroys sin and Satan, we have a responsibility, don't we? And it is to stand firm to maintain sound doctrine, continue to be strengthened for every good work and word. One author says this, and I'll just give this as an encouragement to you in closing. He says, Your battle won't end tomorrow, but neither will God's sustaining grace. Your battle will not end tomorrow, but neither will God's sustaining grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have equipped us to serve You and to please You. And at the end of it all, we can't boast in ourselves because we are, at the very best, unworthy servants. We've only done what we've been asked. And yet, for some reason... We are destined for glory because we are attached to Your beloved Son, Jesus. And so we embrace our position in You with great joy, but we don't fully understand why You would do such a thing to us. How can it be that You would save someone like us? Lord, we are amazed at Your grace and we're grateful to You for our salvation. We pray that You'd help us to be able to stand firm and to maintain sound doctrine and to be comforted and strengthened for every good work and word. Lord, You know we are prone to give up, prone to wander, prone to be distressed, be quick to to, um, to throw in the towel, but, 
but we understand that You provide for us sustaining grace that we need to continue on to just make it to tomorrow. Sometimes it's all we have in us. Just enough for one more day. Lord, give us the strength to do that. and Help us to be conduits of Your grace as we seek to encourage one another in this way. May we be the means by which You pour out blessing to Your people as we encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today so that we will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Lord, we need Your strength in doing this. We need each other. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.